All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 43 this morning. If you happen to be newer here, or maybe you haven't been with us in a while, when, when I preach, uh, I, I preach through books of the Bible. And so we've been going through the book of Acts for some time now, and we've made our way into chapter 13, and just we're slowly working our way through that because we want to see what God has for us. I, I hope you understand that when I come up here and I preach, I'm not telling you my opinion about God. I am, Lord willing, faithfully expounding the word of God so that you might see what God says of himself to you. And so that's why we're here. That's what we're going to do week in and week out, Lord willing. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got these blue and white Bibles there in the pews. Those are our gifts to you for being here. Please take one of those when you go. We want you to have access to the word of God because in the word we find life. Now let me ask you a question here. What if you were given an open door to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm talking about a golden opportunity, sort of one of those free pass to Disneyland, the golden ticket in your chocolate bar, right? Like the 30 seconds to make the free throw for a million dollars, kind of an open door to the gospel. What would you do? What would you say? How would you even begin to communicate the truth of the gospel? I mean, after you've obviously picked your jaw up off of the floor for for this great golden opportunity, what is it you would say? What would you focus on? I mean, these kinds of open doors do happen. They happen on plane rides. They happen when you go out to lunch with your coworker. They happen when you're tucking your kids into bed at night. They happen when you are actively, intentionally out there sharing the gospel with those who do not believe. It could come like in the form of your kid turning to you and saying, what must I do to be saved? It might look like your neighbor kind of waving you over into his yard and you walk over there and he says, you know what, I've been meaning to ask you, why are you a Christian? It may come in the form of you're out there on quad day today. Or maybe you're participating in that 40 days of friendship that that John is encouraging us to do, to develop relationships with students over the next 40 days in the hopes of building relationships, not just sharing the gospel, but sharing our lives with them. And one of them turns to you and he says, what do you believe about Jesus? Those kinds of open doors. And sure, you might, you might be out there intentionally and you think that it's just closed door after closed door after closed door after closed door, but suddenly there's an open opportunity. Somebody that for the longest time maybe seemed really cold towards the gospel and completely unconcerned about it. Suddenly he's now, they're, they're, they're showing signs of life and an interest. I, I just had a conversation with Josh this week about a guy that, that he had been meeting with for months in this, in this uh, group of, of Chinese visiting scholars, sharing the gospel over and over again. This guy was just kind of like, yeah, meh, whatever. You know, suddenly he's, he's showing interest. He wants to go deeper. He wants to learn more after all this time. And so what do you do with that? These are open doors, golden opportunities, and they're all around us if only we would be intentional to look for them. But so often we're not looking for them. 
And when the Lord does bring them and they just kind of plops them right down in our laps, we, we don't even know what to do. We're unprepared for what to say. Or when they do respond to the gospel, we think we need to provide some sort of detailed regimen as far as what they need to do next. And because we're kind of at a loss for what do we really need to encourage them towards? Well, this morning in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43, Paul and Barnabas are given an open door, a golden opportunity to share the gospel. Now, they're going out, they're on mission, they're actively seeking opportunities to bear witness to Christ. But as they're doing that, God gives them an open door. And we want to learn from them. What did they say? What did they focus on? How did they respond to the mixed reactions of the people present? And we want to do this so that we are ready, both in season and out of season, to give an answer for the hope that remains within us. We want to receive and respond when given these gospel opportunities to bear witness to Christ. And this passage gives us a guide for how to share that hope that remains within us. And here's it. it. Here's what it is. Here's the central truth that we're going to see this morning. God is faithful in preparing the way and sending the risen Christ to free us from our sin. Now, if you've been in, you know, you've been a Christian for quite some time, that's going to be a very, very familiar truth to you, but one that's so important for us to hear. God is faithful in preparing the way and sending the risen Christ to free us from our sin. And so may it result in our rejoicing in the grace of God as we read this passage. And it's a longer passage, just want to warn you ahead of time. So I would encourage you that as I read it, that you would focus on how Paul presents the gospel, what he actually says, and how he calls them to respond. And let me also say this, this is not just helpful when we're given those golden opportunities to share the gospel with others, but this is the same message that we preach to ourselves, the same message that gives us life and hope. And so this message that we preach for the salvation of others is the same message we preach to ourselves so that our joy might be found in him. And so as we do that, I pray that joy would come upon us and that out of the overflow of that joy, we would proclaim the hope that we have. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Got to love that, right? Put up with them, right? And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And although they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now, we're going to look more carefully about the various responses to this open door of the gospel next week when we finish out this chapter But this morning, I want to break our main idea down into three points. Our history, our Savior, and our plight. Or if you want the long version, our God is faithful in preparing the way and sending the risen Christ to free us from our sin. And so first, let's consider this history. Friends, there there are all sorts of methods 
and, and strategies or approaches people can take to present the gospel. Some like to use illustrations. Some like to take that well-worn path of the Roman road. Others like to try to establish four spiritual laws that, that sort of bind every single person. It's true of all people. And even throughout the book of Acts, when we're given these summary gospel presentations, as we've gone along so far, uh, like this one here, we see that no matter who the speaker is, whether that be Peter or Stephen or Philip or Paul, uh, they might start in different places. Some of them might start with scriptural truth, like Stephen kind of talks about, he gives a biblical history of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Or some might be using current situations or circumstances, the way that Philip came running up alongside the Ethiopian eunuch and overheard him reading from Isaiah, or, or Paul in Athens finds the, the image of the unknown God and, and starts there. Now, regardless of where they start, even though they start from different places, they're given to different audiences, to one degree or another, there are consistently three aspects to every single presentation to the gospel. And that's important for us to consider. Every single one of them talks about our history, that in one way or another, God has shown himself faithful in preparing the way. Whether that be like God has called, caused the rain to fall on the righteous and on the wicked, or you know, you, God, you, mankind has this desire to worship and find something to worship, and, and God is not very far from each one of us. He's proving himself faithful, or look at how God was faithful despite Israel's unfaithfulness. No matter what, he establishes that history. God is faithful in preparing the way. Two, our, for our Savior in sending the, um, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to, three, redeem us from our plight, to free us from our sin. And so no matter where you are in the book of Acts, no matter which gospel presentation you're reading or who they're speaking to, you have these three things. Every gospel presentation throughout the book of Acts, to one degree or another, another covers our history, our Savior, and our plight, that the one true and living God has been faithful in preparing the way for the coming of the risen Christ in fulfillment of Scripture to free us from our sin. And so, as Paul and his companions go out, they leave the island of Cyprus there in verse 13, and they make their way to another Antioch, this time in Pisidia. They're contextualizing the gospel through these three touch points, our history, our Savior, and our plight. No matter who's proclaiming the message, whether it be Peter, Paul, Stephen, Philip, no matter who they're speaking to, Jew or Gentile, or how biblically informed they are, that they're, they've memorized Scripture, they know nothing about Scripture at all. These are the three things that they speak about. And so we want to learn from this so that we might be ready in season and out of season. What do I do when given that open door? Hopefully you can remember these three things, our history, our Savior, and our plight. And so as they set sail from the capital of Cyprus, named Paphos, they land in Perga. John leaves them, which we'll deal with that in more detail next time. And rather than staying there, they climb up this mountain range to arrive at the second of six cities during that time period called Antioch. Antioch was just a, a popular name to name your city. Struggling for a name, draw it out of a hat, Antioch. It's kind of like in America, you know, like so many cities named Springfield, just everywhere. So here you got another Antioch, and, and they, they, why they went there, we're not exactly sure. 
Some scholars suggest, well, maybe Sergius Paulus, the proconsul there in Cyprus, had some connections there in Antioch, and he wanted them to go to that place. I think another possibility is the fact that, that this is probably a really large synagogue because it talks about having multiple rulers. Most, most synagogues only had one ruler. This one had many. It clearly had a Jewish population. It was pretty significant. And it had a lot of God-fearing Gentiles. And so that's a, that's a good place to start. That's a big, healthy synagogue to, to start from. And given the fact that Paul was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, and Barnabas was a Levite, so quite possibly a priest, if they go there, more than likely they will be given an opportunity to speak. And if you're part of an isolated synagogue up there in the mountains, and some teacher and some priest make an arduous journey up to come from Jerusalem and show up on your door, guess what you're going to do? You're going to give them an opportunity to speak. And that's exactly what happens, right? Verse 14, halfway down, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, probably noticing how they're dressed or maybe had a conversation with them ahead of time, you know, as they were sipping coffee and eating donuts or whatever they do before they, for fellowship, before they actually start reading from the law and prophets. Uh, they, they sent this message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement or exhortation for the people, then say it. And this was their custom every single week. They read from the law and the prophets, followed by an exposition and exhortation or encouragement from Scripture that someone that the ruler had selected to speak. So you, you want to know why we do what we do on Sunday, why we read the Bible so much, or, or why I get up and I, I give a word of exhortation from Scripture? It was because of this. Right? This, is, this is what God's people had been doing for centuries, for millennia. And so, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Jew and God-fearing Gentile, listen. This is the exhortation that I have for you, that God is faithful in preparing the way and sending the resurrected Christ to free you from your sin. And verses 17 through 41 is a three-point sermon regarding our history, our Savior, and our plight. In verses 17 through 25, Paul selectively recounts the history of God's faithful dealings with the undeserving people Israel. Verse 17, the God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Well, you know what they were doing in Egypt, right? They were slaves. He still made them great. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of slavery. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, despite their grumbling and complaining and wanting to turn back to Egypt. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. Verse 20, after that, though there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, God was still faithful to give them judges, leading up to Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then they sinfully asked for a king so that they could be like the nations around them. And what did God do? God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he himself testified and said of David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And so as, 
as Paul recounts God's faithful dealings with Israel throughout history from delivering them from slavery in Egypt to walking up to uh, the, the promise given to David and appointing a king after his own heart who will do all his will, God made a promise to David and, and to Israel through David's offspring that God would establish this forever king who would not only deliver Israel from all of her enemies, all that enslaved her, but who, as his son, would do all that God had, or all that David had failed to do, to perfectly obey the whole will of God, to truly be a man after God's own heart. And so from there, Paul fast forwards through history to verse 23. Of this man, David's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he had promised. Have you ever thought about the weight of that statement? That God has made this promise. A thousand years before Jesus, God made this promise. And it was fulfilled perfectly in him. But even before his coming, verse 24, God sent John the Baptist as a forerunner, as a voice in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Hey, listen, make his paths straight. And this John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was, and as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this long-awaited promised Savior and King has come, and he is far, far greater than any of you could ever imagine that this voice in the wilderness, this prophet of God, was not worthy even to complete the most humble task before him. He couldn't even stoop down and untie his sandal. And so this is how Paul recounts our history from Egypt to Jesus. And notice here, he doesn't focus on man. He doesn't focus on what you failed to do, or what you need to do, or what you needed to do that you did wrong. Shame on you. But on God's undying faithfulness. God did this. God did this. And God did this. And God did this. Despite your unfaithfulness, God did this, and God did this, leading up to Jesus. His first exhortation in given this open opportunity, this open door to the gospel, is to remember our history, that since the very beginning, God has been faithful. God has been working. God has been acting. God has been promising. God has been fulfilling a glorious and blessed future that he will indeed fulfill in his own good and perfect timing. And so Paul says to them, see that God is faithful. Know that God is faithful. Remember that God is faithful. Regardless of who you are, God's work throughout human history has proven over and over and over and over again that God is indeed faithful. 
And guys, we need this message because our recounting of history is both naive and superficial. When we think about our lives, or when mankind tells of our history, it is by nature godless. It forgets our connection to God and to his purposes. When you click on the news and you watch the way mankind reports history, when you open up your textbooks in your history class and you read page after page after page, when you tell your story, when you read editorials, when you watch anything on the media over and over again, it's saturated with a very superficial and naive understanding of history because it doesn't tell it from God's perspective. Never does it say God is faithful. You used to be able to read it. You could read it in the history even of our country when you read the, the journals of, say, George Washington. God is faithful. Look at God's providence. But not anymore. And day after day, we see this. When we turn on our televisions or when we listen to the news, day after day we read this in our newspapers or in our history books and we're taught that from a young age that God is not at work, that history has been moving on apart from God and it is just not true. And guys, if you cannot see God's faithfulness throughout the recounting of human history, guess what you're not gonna see? God's faithfulness in your own life. You won't. If we can't see that God is faithful in dealing with mankind from the very beginning, how will, how will I see that he's faithful to me? And we want to help people to see it. Guys, here's the thing. This is true for you no matter what. God has proven himself faithful. The fact that you're breathing right now is evidence of the fact that God is faithful. And surely, though you would say, you know what, I'm so far removed from Egypt, I can't even think about this idea of being enslaved as, as a slave in Egypt and, and, and now being here, you know, kind of freed from that and God doing this work. Surely you can look back over the course of your life and you can see ways in which God has delivered you from some sort of adversity that just doesn't make sense apart from the hand of God. It's just like God has allowed you to prosper in ways that you shouldn't. Surely you have seen ways that God has put up with you and blessed you far more than you deserve. How he has carried you in the wilderness, in the darkness, in your lowest times and made a way for you because of his sustaining love. Maybe you haven't been able to pinpoint that that was God's hand, but you know that there was something other in yourself that allowed you to stand. Hopefully you can recognize that even when you asked God for a very worldly desire, the way that Israel desired a king just to be like the nations, that underneath that desire is a truer and deeper longing in God that he stands ready and able and is fulfilling. And that all along the way, that despite your many efforts to run from him, that God has sent you reminders. That God has continued to make his message known to you over and over and over again. 
that no matter where you went, how far you ran, there was the message of God. That he would send out his ambassadors, they would send out his messengers, he'd send out his prophets to proclaim this truth to you. Preparing the way of the Lord for you to receive him. That over and over again, he has made this message of salvation known through his people. That despite your unworthiness and despite their unworthiness, God has been faithful to prepare for you a way to hear and receive his word. Even in your hearing this morning, right now, God has proven himself faithful. It's not just Israel's history. It's not just the ancient history of God-fearing Gentiles. That is our history. It's your history. Can you not see how despite your rejection of him that God has proven himself faithful over and over again? Surely you have seen his faithfulness in some way in your life. If nothing else, at least in the sustaining of it. But there's more than that because in your hearing this message, God has proven himself faithful. And this is what we want to do when we're given open doors to the gospel to help them to see God's faithfulness throughout the storyline of scripture and in their own lives. Do you not see that God has been faithful? This is part of the gospel that we preach to ourselves every morning. This is part of the message that we proclaim to others. That God has and ever will be faithful in preparing the way. And so our history is meant to prepare the way second for our Savior. In verses 26 through 37... We see that God has proven himself faithful in sending the resurrected Christ. And in this section, Paul proves that Jesus is the risen Savior by focusing on three things. On the fulfillment of Scripture, on Jesus' innocence in his death, and on his resurrection from the dead. In verse 26, he says, brothers. He addresses them again. This is how you know it's point number two, right? Every time he addresses them, here's your next point, right? So point number two, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This message has been sent to you. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Though the prophets were clear, and though they, just like you, gathered together, and every single Sabbath, they hear the word being read from the law and the prophets. They did not understand it. They did not see how he was the Christ according, according to the scripture. And in failing to understand in God's sovereign plan, they fulfilled this scripture by condemning him. But he was innocent. Verse 27, or 28 and though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, asked for Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, all that God had already foretold in his word about his suffering and death, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Most certainly, 
in hearing the law and the prophets read Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, they would have at least come across Isaiah 53. At least. So many passages that we can look at, but this one, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears in silence, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, a sight and a satisfaction that cannot happen apart from the resurrection. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, this passage was given by God hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And yet it's filled perfectly in him. Though he was innocent, he died a guilty man's death to bear the iniquities of us all. But that is not the end. Because it's not simply enough that the innocent Savior King from the line of David must die in accordance with the Scripture. He must also rise from the grave. And so in verse 30, Paul continues, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to these things. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, all of those centuries ago, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. How does God fulfill it? By raising Jesus. Also, it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. How is Psalm 2 fulfilled? Because God has exalted the risen Lord Jesus Christ over Gentiles and kings and children of Israel to his rightful place as the exalted Lord over all. It's in his resurrection that God has shown the world that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, that he, the Son, is Lord over all in fulfillment of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 doesn't make sense if it's just talking about a man. Verse 34, 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. In the Greek version of Isaiah 55, verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Guys, this is big. This is really, really big. Because Paul is not only saying that the resurrection means that the promised one would not see corruption as part of God's covenant to David. So get that. You can't understand God's promise to David apart from this future resurrection. And that through this resurrection, these gifts, the sure and holy blessings of God would be given to him. It goes beyond that. Because the you is not speaking of the son. The you is speaking of you, God's people. That in the resurrection of the Holy One of God, in the resurrection of this, this forever king from the line of David, not only would he receive these gifts, this sure blessings from God, but that he would extend them outward to all of God's people. So all of those promises that God made to David are yours in the resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. Do you get that? This is big. This is why Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 4 changes the wording of Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Psalm 68, right? Because in the Psalm it says that he received gifts from men, and, and Paul intentionally says he gave gifts to men. This is a hang-up for, for those, those liberal scholars, because just like, look at that, he twisted it. But no, it's because he understood it in light of the fulfillment of Christ in his resurrection. That in Christ being risen from the grave, he didn't only receive these gifts, this sure blessing from God, he gives it to his people. You get to participate in those promises that God made to David. They're yours in Christ. These are the sure and holy blessings of God being distributed to his people because of the resurrection of the Holy One. God's promise to David is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul continues on in verse 35. Therefore he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so just like Peter in Acts chapter 2, Paul says that this psalm cannot just be about David because David died. His body went to Sheol, the grave, and right now it's being decayed. It's subject to corruption. It can't be about him. It never could be just about him. David is simply a foreshadowing of the true Holy One who would not see corruption, who would not be left in the grave. And since David served his purpose and saw corruption, this psalm can never be fulfilled in his offspring uh, in just a, a worldly, man-centered sense, but in the true Holy One. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's what that means. Jesus' resurrection proves that he is the true son of David, the true Holy One of Israel. Jesus' resurrection proves that he is the true son of God in, in fulfillment of Isaiah, or, uh, Psalm 2. His resurrection proves that God was satisfied in his death on the cross for sin 
and his resurrection proves that all the holy and sure blessings of David will be poured out among all of God's people. We've got to talk about the resurrection. We've got to see the hope and life in the resurrection. And so when we think about our own lives or when we think uh, uh, about these opportunities that God gives us, these open doors to sharing the gospel, not only do we focus on God's faithfulness in preparing the way for Christ, but how in fulfillment of so much scripture, Jesus, though completely innocent, died a sacrificial death for sin and rose again to reveal who he is and to share with us all the blessings that come from this salvation. But to do so in a way that's not focused on us, but focused on him. Because who on earth could fulfill all of these Old Testament promises but Jesus? This is why we need to know our Old Testament, guys. To see Jesus. Who on earth has ever lived a sinless life? Who could make a way for undeserving sinners to receive the eternal blessings of God, but one who through his perfect sacrifice died and rose again? Who alone has the power of life over death to reveal his nature and his position? Who alone can offer eternal blessings in the presence of joy, both now and forevermore? The answer is found only in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who died and rose to fulfill Scripture as a perfect sacrifice for sin. So Paul's appeal to them was not what you get if you come to Jesus. Or what you need to do for God. Or how you can go about fulfilling or avoiding the opposite extreme, which is eternal condemnation in hell, but who Jesus is, what his death and resurrection accomplished, and only then can we understand the blessings that overflow from him. You see, sometimes we can go far too quickly to their response, trying to get a reaction without allowing these deep, God-centered, Christ-centered truths to permeate their hearts and minds. We don't, we don't allow them time to digest. I mean, even look at what, what Paul and Barnabas do. Like, they, pr- they proclaim the gospel, they give them a warning, they walk away, and they say, continue in the grace of God. You need to think about this. They didn't get all excited because everybody else was excited. Because they knew that this truth needed to trickle down, that it needed to overwhelm their hearts. You see, sometimes in going too quickly uh, to these reactions, we fail. We actually get in the way of this truth saturating their hearts and minds. And guys, I can't help but wonder what would happen if instead of focusing so much on what Jesus can do for you or what you need, can do for God, both of which are man-centered, we focused on what Jesus did, what he accomplished, God's faithfulness and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because I think that if we did, it would move us away from religious duty to a deep delight in God. That it would, it would 
Move away from man-centered application, right? Here's specifically what we must do to a God-centered abiding. This is who I now am in Jesus, and I want to live out of that grace. That it would move us from license on the one end of like, okay, I got the grace of God, now I want to live however I want, or legalism on the other hand is like, this is what I got to do to earn God's favor, to both of which are, are a raise, a rise out of man's love for himself to a deep and abiding love for Jesus. Because no one can do that but God. Because God is so faithful. And the risen Christ is my treasure. That's what the gospel is meant to do in us. To transform us who hate and reject God to those who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a byproduct, love their neighbors, their self, out of this overflow of love that they have for Jesus. Making a decision for Christ won't do that. Saying a sinner's prayer won't do that. Performing your religious obligations, no matter how consistently, will not do that. Trying to appear godly by doing things for Jesus won't do that. Only a recognition of the great faithfulness of God and the sure hope of our glorious risen Savior will result in a love and a faith that are pleasing to God. It is in the history of God's undying faithfulness and our risen Savior that we find salvation. A life-transforming, soul-gladdening salvation that is offered only in the perfect death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is what we must preach to ourselves and to others. Not what we must do, but what he has already done. And it's only after Paul first sets our gaze on our history and second on our Savior that he then turns our attention third to our plight. Verse 38 let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. For all of the ways that you have forgotten God, try to live your life without him. For all the ways that you have rejected God and have broken his commandments, for all the ways that you have tried to do it yourself, to live for yourself, to try to save yourself through your works, or all the ways that you have tried to find salvation in anyone or anything other than God, there is hope for the forgiveness of your sins. In hearing the gospel proclaimed to you and in by believing in his name, you can be freed from everything from which you can never be freed by trying to live for yourself or by trying to fulfill God's law in your own ability. And remember, he's saying this to a bunch of extremely moral, religious God-fearers who are desperately trying to keep God's commands and who listen to God's laws and prophets being read every single Sabbath. But all of our attempts 
that religious observance are for nothing if we do not behold the one to whom the whole thing points. It's futile. Apart from faith in Christ, everything we do is sin. But Christ has given us freedom. In Christ, there is freedom. There's a freedom from sin. There's a freedom to finally be able to follow the will of God. There's a freedom from everything that bound you to futility and to misery and to death. A freedom to live the life that you were always created to live. A life in communion, in fellowship with the one true and holy living God. To live for his glory and to reflect his character with our lives. And to be able to do that to a world that is hopelessly lost in darkness. Jesus has done for us what we could never, ever do. Not for ourselves and not for others, because through faith in him, we are justified before God. But before he ends, Paul warns them in verse 40. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, look, I am proclaiming this to you. This is not just for them back then, this is for you. I'm proclaiming it to you. Do not fulfill Habakkuk's warning by blowing this off. Don't despise what God has done to free you from your sin. Don't look with scorn upon the faithfulness of God. This gospel message that you are hearing right now is evidence of God's faithfulness and the surety of salvation that comes from him. Don't scoff at it. Don't dismiss it. Don't disregard it. Don't walk out of here and forget. But unfortunately, some do. And they will fulfill what Habakkuk had warned against them. They will look. They will initially be astounded, like we see in verses 42 and 43. But on the very next Sabbath, when almost the whole city is gathered to hear the word of the Lord, in their jealousy, they will scoff at the work that the Lord is doing in their days. They will see, they will behold, and they will perish because they contradict, they revile, they refuse to believe despite the fact that someone is telling them they will perish. But God is still faithful in preparing a way and in sending his son. And he is still at work to free many from their sin who receive it by faith in Christ. Friends, I hope you understand that when we reject this message of our history, of our Savior, and of our plight, that God is, is still faithful in preparing the way and sending the risen Christ to free us from our sin, that when we do that, we are actually fulfilling Scripture. 
you, no matter how you respond today, are fulfilling Scripture. You see, God's Word was not just for them way back then. It's about us. If Habakkuk's warning can be fulfilled some 500 years later, it can also be fulfilled some 2,500 years later. And we can look, we can be astounded, and we can perish. All who scoff at the work of God in their days, all who refuse to believe despite being told, will be astounded and perish. And so, we must be warned and we must provide warnings when given open doors to share the gospel. But by God's grace, some will respond. God will do a work in their hearts and they will desire to receive his word. And so then what do we do? I mean, look at what's happening here in this text. I mean, they're literally trying to get out of there and people are chasing them down. I want to hear more. 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 Do we have them make a decision for Christ right there so we can kind of get them out of our face and move on? Do we have them just kind of sit down, say a sinner's prayer, and then, then they're all good to go? You just kind of be merry and on your way? Do we give them a, a laundry list of religious duties that they must perform? Look at verse 42. It says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Let me just say to you, as a fallen man, I would love for that to be true. After the, the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Somebody responds with openness to the gospel that we proclaim? You want to know what to say to them? Continue in the grace of God. That's what you want to plead with them. That's what you would want to admonish them. That's what you want to urge them to do, to continue in the grace of God. Give yourself to things that will allow you to continue in the grace of God. Repent and believe the gospel. That's keeping in the grace of God. Devote yourself to the ministry of the word. That's continuing in the grace of God. Remind yourself of these truths daily. That's continuing in the grace of God. Find your life, find your hope, find your satisfaction in him. Continue in the grace of God. There's grace in the fellowship of the church. There's grace in prayer. There's grace in baptism and in the Lord's Supper and in living in a committed community of other believers. Not as duties, not as ends in and of themselves, but as a means to continue in the life-giving grace of God. It's a relationship. It's a reaction. It's a response. It's a back and forth. It's not a one-time, forget about it, move on by your own strength, but you want to continue in the life-giving grace of God. God from the Father every day. Continue in it. We sell people short when we say, all you got to do is make a decision. All you got to do is pray this prayer. All you got to do is come forward and you'll be with Jesus. People are going to hell because of that. And they need to be told, continue in the grace of God. How did the first disciples continue in the grace of God? They denied themselves and they followed Jesus. 
How does Paul tell the church to continue in the grace of God? Imitate me or, or follow me as I imitate or follow Christ. Paul didn't give them a long list of specific points of application. Instead, he admonished them to devote themselves to a way of life, to continue in the grace of God, to spend themselves on a life that is lived in continual recognition of our history, of our Savior, and of our plight. That no matter who you are, no matter to whom you are speaking, Our exhortation is always the same. Continue in the grace of God and you will have life. That's what you need to hear. That's what they need to hear. And so when given an open door to preach the gospel, both to yourself and to others, this is the focus of our message our history, our Savior, and our plight. That God has been, is, and always will be faithful in preparing the way and sending the risen Christ to free us from our sin. Beware not to scoff or to despise his word, but instead continue in the grace of God because this is your history. This is your Savior. This is your plight. And so as God is faithful in preparing this way, receive him. As God has been faithful in sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill all of his promises that he has been communicating for century after century after century, how he died an innocent death and rose again from the grave, Receive him. How do you overcome this plight, the sin that enslaves you, is to accept that message, to beware, to continue in the grace of God. So let's do that together as we pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this reminder of the gospel. I didn't say anything other than what most of us have already heard. But Lord, I do pray that the gospel would permeate our hearts and our minds more deeply this morning than than it maybe has in a while or, or maybe ever before. That that it would transform our hearts. It would take our focus away from ourselves, whether our sense of of failure or our fears or our sin or or our attempts to please you through uh, our religious ritual, to setting our hearts and minds upon your faithfulness and the perfections of your Son. And through that might we have life. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Let us not walk out of here scoffing at your word and the work that you are doing in our days. But God, give us the strength to continue in your grace, both now and forevermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.